We'll be spending our time in Joshua 3 today. All of Joshua 3, verses 1 through 17. And so you can go and turn there, as that will be where we will be for the bulk of our time. I don't know how you all feel at the end of a busy holiday week. But I trust many of us, while thrilled to have enjoyed some time with friends and family perhaps, are feeling a bit wearied, a bit tired. And I I trust that that tired feeling does not just exist around the holidays. It's something we suffer through, something that plagues our existence as fallen humanity. If you've ever suffered through a prolonged time of restlessness, You understand how great of an impact that can have on your life, or it just takes a few nights in a row, doesn't it, before suddenly our basic daily tasks seem impossible to perform, where our focus seems constantly scattered, where we are easily agitated, more easily frustrated, and where each night as that sun sets, we find ourselves increasingly angry for the rest that we so desperately need, The rest that seems so simple to achieve seems increasingly impossible to reach. If you've ever suffered through that type of season, you perhaps also understand how surprisingly simple the solution typically is. A solution that's offered by doctors, by anyone you might seek out. For so very frequently, the the solution to restlessness is something that we've been trained in since childhood. It really revolves largely around a healthy and consistent bedtime routine. It seems too simple and straightforward, and yet that is the most basic solution most people offer. It's a solution that revolves around making sure we're going to bed at the same time every night. A solution that makes sure that we're not looking at things we shouldn't look at, namely tablets and other screens. A solution that speaks to our diet, what we eat, what time we eat, what time we drink. And a solution that, as simplistic and straightforward as it seems, can actually lead to, when followed, that rest that we so desperately need on a daily basis. As we come to Joshua 3 today, we find the people of God, as they come to an end of a very long day in their own history, we see the sun setting on a particularly challenging chapter that has really been marked largely by slavery for hundreds of years in Egypt. Slavery followed by a restlessness in the wilderness. And a restlessness that now has brought them to the brink of finally breaking that insomnia. For they stand here just across from that long-awaited promised land. A land of security, a land of productivity, a land of rest. That land which they have been so desperately longing to enter into for generations now. But as we read through Joshua chapter 3, we see that the people of God still face a very real challenge to entering into that land. A challenge that surely must have made the entrance into that land, surely must have made that rest still still seem impossibly, maddeningly, distant from them. As we walk through Joshua chapter 3, as we see that sun setting on this chapter in their history, we see God graciously walk his people through a very simple, a very straightforward bedtime routine. And upon following that routine, we see the people of God, impossibly it seems, finally get to enter into the rest 
that they were promised so long ago. As we behold these events as they unfold, we behold something that's not just an encouragement to Israelites, but an encouragement, I hope, to all of us, the people of God. For we too have been promised rest. We too have actually entered into rest. It is just a matter of us taking a step back, appreciating the promise that has been given, daily following the routine that we've been given, and enjoying the rest, and in turn, sharing with the world around us, praying and hoping that they too might enter into the same blessed rest that we enjoy. As we begin to look into this text then and consider the end of this chapter, let's once again turn to God in prayer and ask for his blessing upon our time. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for whatever enjoyment we were able to have this last week, perhaps a week that gave us just a brief break from everyday affairs. But Lord, as we turn to Joshua 3 this morning, God, we pray that we might be reminded of the greater rest that we also desperately need. Rest not from our jobs, but rest from the toil and tribulation that is life in a fallen world. God, I pray that as we read this text today, as we come to a a story that is perhaps familiar to many of us, God, that we might still read it with fresh eyes. You might give us the ability to understand this in a way that perhaps we've never understood it before. God, might use this time this morning to be a great encouragement to your people. Might use this time also this morning to draw in those who are still unbelievers at this moment, God. To remove blindness from their eyes and to bring them to a new life through your son, Jesus Christ. God, you are so gracious. You are so good to us, God. Might we be reminded of that goodness this morning as we consider your faithfulness to your people in Joshua 3. It is in your name, Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen. Well, as we look at our text this morning, and as I already mentioned, we pick it up as this chapter is coming to an end. That is to say, a chapter in their history. As such, we come to this picture of that sun that is finally setting. We see that setting sun in Joshua 3, verses 1 through 4. Follow along with me as we consider where the people of God stand. There, beginning in verse 1, we read, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. At the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, with the Levitical priest carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, There shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. As our text picks up, it makes reference to this, this passing of three days. And just to ensure that we appreciate where the people of God are standing here, I think it's helpful to take a step back and understand the timeline, the timetable that we've been following in the book of Joshua. For you see, the three days that Joshua 3 references is actually a second set of three days, a second block of time that follows a similar amount of time, days 1 through 3, that were covered in Joshua 1 through 2. You can read of those days if you just turn back to Joshua chapter 1 and pick it up in verse 10. There earlier in this story, we read, Joshua commanded the officers of the people saying, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people saying, 
prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you are to cross the Jordan, to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess it. Here, approximately three days before this chapter picks up, Joshua gave a command regarding what they're to do in three days. On that same day in Joshua 2, Joshua sent out the two spies, those spies we've been reading about for the last couple of weeks. And so in day one, in this first block of time, the people begin packing up camp there at Shittim, and the two spies are sent out and they find Rahab. And for about three days, the spies interact with Rahab. We see Rahab, this great example of faith, shining forth in Joshua 2. And upon promising these spies that she will follow after them, upon being used by God to protect these spies' lives, the spies then slowly but safely make their way back to their base camp at Shittim, where, at the end of chapter 2, they give a faithful report. They do that which the spies should have always done. They trust God. And thus, at the end of those three days in which people have been packing up their provisions, in which the spies have been working, at the end of those three days, they then pack up camp, and at the beginning of chapter 3, they leave Shittim and go where? They cross the Jordan? Not yet, but they get much closer. They set up a, a temporary camp just outside the bank of the Jordan River, where they will spend the second set of time waiting for God's direction waiting for God to show them exactly where and how they're going to cross this river. You can imagine the anticipation building as it seems they are now just upon the precipice of, of finally entering into that promised land. And yet as exciting as that must have been, you can also imagine the challenge this would have presented the people of God. For the people of God are not just camping out in some luxurious camp, and they're not just camping out in the middle of nowhere. They're camping just outside of the Jordan River, importantly, just outside the Jordan River during peak flood season. You read of that note earlier in Joshua and again later in Joshua chapter 3. For in verse 15, he references the fact that the Jordan overflows all its banks in the days of harvest. And while that language of flood stage might mean little to us as modern day readers, it would have meant a lot to this ancient audience. For you have to understand that the Jordan wasn't just the Jordan River at this moment as they camped there. The Jordan River was massive. It was terrifying. Significantly bigger, significantly challenging than it would have been at any other point in time of the year. For you see where the Jordan River was typically just a few hundred feet across, at flood stage it was about a mile across. Not only that, not only was it flooding beyond its banks, but the Jordan River flowed significantly faster. It was turbulent. As that turbulent flow flowed south towards the Dead Sea, it picked up great amounts of debris, shrubs, plants, plenty of other things that would make swimming across it nearly impossible. As it increased its depth, as it increased its flow then, it increased the difficulty of trying to cross it making it almost impossible to cross outside of the typical fords that would have been made further up in the river. And for three days, the people of God are camped there, staring at this site. It's hard for us to fully appreciate it now, but, but even if you just go downtown Cape Girardeau during certain parts of the year, we can get a taste of it, can't we? can't we? For you can look at the Mississippi River. And imagine staring at the Mississippi River when its floodwaters are climbing up and up and up that flood wall protecting downtown Cape Girardeau. 
You can witness as that river drives trees and massive debris across it as if they weigh nothing. And imagine them being told, yeah, just watch us for a couple days because in three days you're going to have to swim across it. You and your little kids. You can imagine how difficult that would be to believe. You can imagine how much more difficult that would be to believe the longer you are left sitting there hearing the sound of a torrent of of water raging by, watching that flood river flow by you, understanding there's no way you could possibly cross it. But for three days, that is the sight in front of the people of God. That is the wall standing before them an entrance into the land that was promised so very long ago. Well, how on earth could they possibly have faith in this moment? How on earth could they possibly believe that they were going to be successful? Well, the answer to that question is this second focus that chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 speaks to. For at the end of those three days, the people are told their focus is not supposed to be upon the river, but it's it's supposed to be set upon what? Verse 3. When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, with the Levitical priest carrying it, you shall set out from the place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. After watching this raging river for three days, the people of God are told you now have to focus on something else, someone else, namely the ark of the covenant. And it is this ark that we will see plays the central role of Joshua chapters 3 through 4. It is referenced some 17 times in these two relatively short chapters. And for good reason. For the ark of the covenant was an incredibly significant object to the people of Israel. An object that played a significant role throughout the years of wandering throughout the wilderness. As an ark, as a chest, it carried very significant objects, namely the tablets of the law. But more importantly than that, the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God that was to be with him. You can see numerous examples of this, one in particular back in Numbers. In Numbers chapter 10, another text that speaks of wandering in the wilderness, you can hear these words in Numbers chapter 10. Verse 33 is passing but important reference. It says, Thus they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey with the ark of the covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for three days to seek out a resting place for them. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. This is a a, a relatively short passage but a good representation of what the ark was to be used for. This was not the first time in Joshua 3 that the people were supposed to follow the ark. No, the ark always represented that presence of God, and it was always intended to go out before them. It was true when they were in the wilderness, and they were told yet again here as they're about to cross that turbulent river, that ark must go before you. God must go before you. You must see it. You must see him. This is why I believe the people are told to allow 2,000 cubits, which is about 1,000 yards total. The distance, I believe, is not for the sake of, of providing physical safety, right? If you come too close to the ark and touch it, you could die. No, I, I think it's so that everyone can make sure they see the ark. No one misses it. Look at the ark. Look not at the river. Look to God. For if you look to God, they're told, you will see the way across. 
you will see that the Jordan River is no challenge at all. God knows exactly how this will take place. It's an incredible command and certainly presented a great challenge to the people of God. For as real as the presence of God should have felt to the Israelites, well, the reality was is that the sound inside of that Jordan River still would have been incredibly challenging. And this certainly would not be the first time if the people of God allowed a physical challenge to overwhelm them and cause them to take their eyes off the presence of God, would it not? We see this happen throughout the wilderness. As the people of God focus on their hunger, on their thirst, they see not the God who led them across the Red Sea earlier. They see only physical turmoil, physical struggles. So frequently the people of God then were overwhelmed by those struggles and they therefore could not enter the rest that would have otherwise been there for them, for their eyes drift. It is, of course, easy to judge these Israelites, to judge these Hebrew people, I should say. But we understand the same challenge that is always there for the people of God, even today. The presence of God is no less real now than it was then. If anything, we experience a greater presence of God because the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Yet how easy it is for us to forget that presence. How easy it is for the, the physical challenges of this life to, to feel overwhelming, to, to literally lie in bed awake at night, unable to rest because we are so obsessed, so overwhelmed, so anxious over the very real challenges this world presents us. Live long enough and you will experience one of those nights. I trust most of you in here have experienced those nights, perhaps even recently, whether it's because of financial duress, whether it's because difficulties in your marriage, difficulties with your children, difficulties at work, at school, whatever it is, there are real challenges that in the moment appear to threaten our very life. And as we feel overwhelmed by those challenges, the presence of God seems impossibly distant veiled by the darkness of this experience. And yet time and time again we're told, focus on God, look to God, look to Christ, for he is with you. So too were the people of God and Joshua given this command, look to God and he will show you the way across. But again, the question is, well, how on earth could they make sure they would succeed? How could they make sure that in those three days they would be able to see the ark and not just the river? How could they make sure they would be ready to enter into the rest promised. Well, to help them along the way and to ensure that they are in fact prepared, we continue in our text and see Joshua, through God, now giving them that bedtime routine and telling them exactly how they can make sure they are ready, how they can make sure they're focused in the right place so that they can enter into that rest. We see this bedtime routine carried out in verses 5 through 13, but as we begin... Let us just consider verses 5 through 10. There we read. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. Now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall moreover command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here. 
hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, by this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. We'll stop there for the moment. Here, towards the end of this block of three days in which they've been encamped at the Jordan River, Joshua comes before them and in essence says, all right, the day is coming. Now, in order to be ready, make sure you consecrate yourself. Here is the activity given to the people of God. Here is the routine they are to follow to make sure they will not miss the meaning of the miracle. Now, this activity of consecration was certainly nothing new to the people of God. We see various accounts throughout even the wilderness wanderings in which the people of God are commanded to do this. It included a number of activities. It would have included physical washing, washing of clothes, washing their body. Imagine again, remember, they are in the desert, they're in the wilderness, they are dirty. So they were to physically wash themselves, wash their clothes. They were to repent of sins, make sure that they are following dietary laws, make sure that they are honed in, locked in on the ways that God has given them. And they're told to do this time and time again to make sure that they're prepared to meet with God, in essence. This comes with it great historical precedence. One of the most famous examples of this perhaps comes back in Exodus. If you turn back to the book of Exodus, you will see one example of this. In Exodus chapter 19, another very familiar and famous account in the people of God. Here in Exodus 19, they are preparing not to cross the sea, Rather, they are preparing to meet God at Mount Sinai. They're preparing to hear his law as they, as they will be handed down. And in preparation to receive that law, we read in Exodus 19, beginning in verse 10. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds to the people around, saying, Beware that you do not go on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. We see the seriousness of this consecration. We see the warnings that are given in addition to this consecration. And throughout all of these activities, what's the basic point? The point is, ready yourselves, people. Ready yourselves to meet God. It was true and clearly on display at Mount Sinai, and it is equally true and equally practical here at the Jordan River, for the people are told to do something for the purpose of not just crossing a river, although that is physically what is to happen, but for the purpose of understanding the miracle, understanding exactly what it is they will see. And that understanding, that underlying message, is what Joshua focuses in on there in verses 6 through 10. As we read through those verses yet again, we see really two focuses, two lessons that the people of God must prepare themselves to hear, prepare themselves to appreciate and absorb. Those two lessons revolve around God's unique presence 
and God's infinite power. The presence of God is seen both in his attachment to the people of God, but also, just as importantly, to Joshua, his servant. Read with me again in Joshua chapter 3, verse 5. Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do wonders among you. Jump to verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. God tells Joshua that there is something unique about the miracle that he is about to perform. And part of that uniqueness is that we'll demonstrate to the people that God is with Joshua just as God was with Moses. This is very important for the sake of the people, very important to the sake of Joshua, for that's something that God had promised already in Joshua 1, isn't it? God had told Joshua, just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. Here, as God is about to perform a miracle, he tells Joshua, by this miracle, the people will know this to be true. They will not simply trust in my presence, but they will see that I am uniquely tied to you, Joshua. In this way, Joshua is once again being demonstrated, being shown as as a sort of new Moses. The same imagery will certainly be hammered home later on in the text, but we see it already in this understanding. This is an echo, of course, of exactly what God accomplished through Moses in his own miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. If we were to turn back to passages like Exodus, chapter 30, you see, or chapter 14, I should say, you see the same sort of imagery in Exodus chapter 14, verse 30 and 31. They're describing an earlier miraculous deliverance. We read these words, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed the Lord in his servant Moses. God used that miracle to validate the role of Moses. God will use this miracle in Joshua to validate the role of Joshua. The people needed to understand that, therefore the people needed to consecrate themselves. They needed to be focused so they wouldn't miss that unique presence. But it's not just God's presence that they're to understand here. It is, just importantly of course, God's power. It's that power that Joshua focuses in on when he gives this final address to the people of God. There in verses 9 and 10, once again we read, Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. People of Israel, God is with you. And God is not just any common God. God is the living God. This is language the Old Testament uses regularly to confront the pathetic attempts of other nations to present their own gods. The pathetic imitations that other ancient nations attempted to put before as if they could compete with Yahweh. But no, time and time again, those lesser false gods are seen as dead, lifeless, worthless objects. And they all cower before the one true living God. You hear that language powerfully spoken in passages like Psalm 115. 
in Psalm 115. Verses 1 through 8, we'll begin at least in 1, and we read this. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord, for he is our help. He is their shield. The people of Israel here are reminded of this precious ancient truth, that they serve the God who is living. And to demonstrate this point clearly, to really bring it home, he reminds the people of God who this God will cause them to overcome. For it is this living God, he says, who will dispossess the land from the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. Why? Why go to all this trouble to list off these people? Why doesn't he just say, this God is better than the land of Canaan? Well, there's some debate as to why they list these out, but I think, again, it it gives a powerful picture of how all-encompassing the power and rule of God truly is. For you must understand that each of these people groups that Joshua references would have had their own unique gods. Each of these people groups lived scattered throughout the promised land. And so you have the Canaanites who were commonly associated with the sea. They would have had their own gods associated with the sea. You have the Amorites that are associated with more mountainous regions. Again, they would have had their own gods that supposedly ruled over their region. Similar manner, you have the Perizzites that were associated with more of a forested region. Again, there would have been a god of the forested region. These people then in different regions had their own different gods, their own celebrations, their own rituals. And yet, as Joshua powerfully is reminding the people, those gods are nothing before our God. Our God rules over all of them. They're lifeless. They're meaningless. They are blind. They are worthless. But your God's the living God. And he can take whatever he wants because it all belongs to him anyway. The people of God are told this basic truth, a truth they should have known already, but a truth that it seems will be more powerfully understood as a result of this miracle. And it is to that miracle that that Joshua speaks to in verses 11 through 13. For having reminded them of the truths they understand, he now says this miracle that will teach the lesson. For having spoken of the living God, he says in verse 11, Behold, The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from each tribe. It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan will be cut off, and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. Here is the wondrous miracle you are about to see, Hebrew people. Here is the wondrous power of God on display. And what is the wondrous power? What is the display? It's it's eerily familiar, isn't it? 
for it seems God is going to do for this generation the exact same thing he did for the generation before in that original exodus. For the people of God are told, as you march ahead into that turbulent river, that river that is at its peak flood stage, the second you set foot in it, it will stand in one heap. And that language is perhaps bizarre to many of us, but to Old Testament readers, that particular language would have rang with, with such familiarity, such precious familiarity. For that language of water standing in one heap is the exact language used to describe the Exodus. The exact miracle of God causing the people to cross the Red Sea. You can read it in the, in the book of Exodus again. Turn with me, if you will, back to Exodus chapter 15. For I think it is so important to appreciate this language as it no doubt would have been familiar to these Israelites. For in Exodus chapter 15, in this famous song of Moses, sang out to God in praise as a result of the crossing of the Red Sea. Beginning in verse 6 of Exodus chapter 15, Moses speaks this. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy, and in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrew those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger. It consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea, and the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword, my hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? That was the song of Moses. Used to praise God in response to his miraculous work in the Exodus. A song, no doubt, passed down to the generations. The generation that fell short in the wilderness, but also the generation that came up after them, the generation that now sits camped out at the Jordan River. And it's that generation they are told, remember that story of, of what your parents experienced? Remember that miraculous picture of God's power that was so perfectly put on display? You're going to experience the same thing. You're going to walk that same path your ancestors walked. You're going to see with your own eyes that same power, that same majesty, that same holiness of God. And as you experience it, you will perhaps for the first time truly see his magnificence. Oh, but in order to see it, they must be ready. They must be prepared. For it seems if they are not prepared, they'll miss something. They'll miss the depth, they'll miss the glory and they will risk, like their parents, failure of falling short, failure of, of claiming that prize of rest that God has given them. And so, Hebrew people, consecrate yourselves. Be ready for that day for it is holy, for it will be miraculous. The call to be prepared is something that is very serious in the Old Testament, but we must appreciate as the church today, it's just as relevant to the New Testament church for time and time again in the New Testament, we are told, be ready, people of God. Do not miss it. 
people of God. Use your time wisely, people of God. The Apostle Paul regularly gives out this warning, this call to be ready to pay attention. You can read it as he speaks primarily to church leaders in 2 Timothy chapter 4. You can read it as he speaks to all of us in Ephesians 5 of not wasting the time like the wicked, the pagans do, but walking in a manner wisely. And you can read it, perhaps most importantly for us, and warnings given by our Savior, Jesus Christ himself. And parables like the parables of the ten virgins. Matthew chapter 25. This text in which he describes the coming bridegroom. But he comes in the middle of the night and as a result of not being prepared, these virgins are not ready. They, they scatter and they are not there for his return. And he says at the end of this parable in Matthew 25 verse 13, Be on alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. God, his son, speaks clearly of this warning. Be ready, be prepared. Do not miss the meaning of the days. And so daily, brothers and sisters in Christ, we're told to do this. We're told not to focus on these overwhelming circumstances of the world that surrounds us, something that is so easy to do. We do not waste our times like those who are hopeless, without purpose, without direction. No, we live our lives knowing that this breath we take could be the last before Jesus returns. We take that seriously. We make sure we are ready so that we do not miss him. We make sure we are ready so we do not waste whatever opportunities he lays before us. Day in, day out, we prepare. We put on the full armor of God. We fight the fights God's given us. We perform the good works that God has given us to perform. And we do it all the while like a proper and good soldier preparing themselves for that day of battle. For we know, we know that God is returning. And we know that he will do something miraculous before the people that, he, that has trusted him. And so we must be ready. The people of God, I assume, and based off the text continues, did in fact ready themselves. And again, you can imagine that, that anticipation building as the sun is setting, as they're looking out over that Jordan and they're wondering, how on earth is God going to do this? And as the text comes to a close in verses 14 through the end, we see exactly how God does this. We see the improbable manner, the miraculous manner in which God, just as promised, delivers his people into the rest they so desperately needed. We pick up that rest beginning in verse 14 and 15. So, when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan, with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And then those who carried the Ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped at the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all of its banks of the days of the harvest. We'll pause here. Here I believe the author is, is dragging out the details, for he speaks of the passage of, of days and passing. Three days here, three days there, it's nothing. But when he comes to the part of the story where we're all so eagerly waiting to hear what happens... He slows it down. He says, so, so just as it happened, people packed up their stuff. And the priests picked up the Ark of the Covenant. They slowly started marching towards that turbulent river. And when they set their foot on it, now remember, reader, now remember, it's at its flood stage. This would have been crazy to do. And he drags this out. 
And yet having drug it out as much as he can, he says what? In verses 16 through 17. The waters which were flowing down from above stood up and rose in one heap. A great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethon. Those who were flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho, and the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all of Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. As unlikely as it must have seemed as they are marching towards a river at its peak flood stage, we see God doing exactly what he said he would do. For the second those priests set foot in that raging water, suddenly that raging water stops. And I can only imagine how overwhelming that must have been to the senses to go from this turbulent raging current to nothing. From this overflowing, overwhelming river to nothing. For the second they set foot in that raging current, the water stops. It's gone. And we're told it's not just limited to this very specific point. No, it stopped all the way up to the city of Adam, we are told. And historically, that speaks of a a city about 15 miles north of where they were. And the water stops in one heap at Adam, and it stops all the way down south for another maybe three, four miles south of where they are. So we're talking about an expanse of nearly 20 miles of nothing. Not only does the river stop, The ground itself, we are told, is what? What's dry? Which, of course, goes against what you would always assume because, well, if the water just went away, that'd be one thing, but it would still be muck and mire and difficult to cross, particularly for the younger in the audience. But we're told that the people of God, first the Levitical priest, stand there in the middle of the Jordan. That which just a second before was characterized by chaos. But now it's peace. That which before would have seemed insane to cross now seems like just the most logical footpath, most logical trail that God has set out for his people. And that ground which was a second before soaked through was now dry, giving the people of God an easy path to cross. And as they did so with their eyes set on the ark, you know their mind, again, must have gone back to that exodus. For this is exactly the same miracle God performed at the Red Sea. For if you were to turn back to Exodus chapter 14, you would have seen the same activity of God. He parts the Red Sea, they cross on dry ground. God routinely does. That which is beyond our understanding. And God is able to do this because, again, he's the living God. And so just as the Son of God can command a storm to cease, Yahweh in the Old Testament can tell a river to stop and the ground to dry. And it is awe-inspiring for us. It is beyond anything we could ever possibly imagine doing. But for God, well, it's it's just simple. It's what he does. And as if in a dream, as they come to the end of chapter these people of God having gone through a history of 400 years of slavery can you imagine that your history speaks of 400 years of toil and labor and utter hopelessness 
And even after when it seems that is coming to an end, well, your ancestors messed up again. And for 40 more years, it's toil, and it's going through the wilderness, and it's suffering, and it's waiting, and it's hoping. And then after three more days of that sound of a raging river, the sight of a river that you could never possibly touch, at the end of it all, suddenly they're there. Suddenly they're, they're standing in the promised land. Suddenly God has just handed it to them. And the people of God, for the first time in hundreds and hundreds of years, are at rest. There certainly are challenges that they still face, for it is still the people of God that must dispossess the land, they must fight. And in that, there's a warning, there's, an, there's, there's a reality, but... But there's such a deep encouragement in this text, is there not? And it's true for all of us here today. For unbelievers, the warning is, is clear, the encouragement is clear that, that you must act. As you consider this message of Joshua 3, the response of the unbeliever is understanding that, that God does have rest for you, unbeliever. He does have security to give you. He does have a life to give you but you must believe. You must walk forward in faith. You must repent of your sins. Die to yourself, put your faith in Jesus, and if you do, God will carry you across that river and God will plant you firmly in his kingdom. You can try and try as much as you want, unbeliever, to do it on your own, but you are toiling away as a dead man. You can do nothing. And so, unbeliever, I pray, I pray that you cannot get a wink of sleep tonight because you are so terrified of the reality of the wrath of God that sits over you. I pray that you are so overwhelmed by the challenges of this life and by the realization that you are helpless and hopeless and weak and sinful that you lie there awake for hours on end. But I pray that at the end of it all, of course, that God might use that restlessness to open up your eyes for the first time of the only place for true rest. That you understand that true rest, true fulfillment comes only through the Son, Jesus Christ. And that you might heed these words of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. Let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. You might understand it is only by following after Christ, putting your faith in Christ, that you can experience the rest here. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that we might take, take seriously the warning and the calling of Joshua 3, that we might daily be prepared. That again, we might daily put into practice the language of Hebrews 3 and 4 to diligently enter that rest. Remember the challenges set before us. Follow God faithfully. But as we take that warning seriously, I pray also that we might understand that as encouraging as the people of God must have felt standing for the first time in the land of Canaan, we have infinitely greater reason to be encouraged today. For as great as Joshua was, he died, and he could not give them the rest they needed. As great as that promised land was, they would lose it time and time again. And as wonderful as that peace must have felt in that moment, well, again, it would be lost in war and battle. But believer, the same is not true for us. 
we follow not some fallen saint like Joshua or Moses before him, we follow Christ. Christ has given you rest, believer. Do you understand that? Do you understand what that means? That you no longer have to toil for your salvation. You rest in his finished work. And so daily, we, we are diligent to enter into that rest. We pray that God causes us to keep our eyes fixed upon the cross, fixed upon his resurrection, understanding that it is only through that that we are saved. And as we diligently strive to enter that rest, we remember that unlike every other fallen leader before us, Our leader, Jesus Christ, is ever-present, always with us, always living, always all-powerful. And so daily we strive after him, following after him, and trusting that someday, as simple as the promise might seem, and as childish as it might sound, someday we will close our eyes and sleep and wake to eternal life in the kingdom of heaven and we will see our Savior. We are confident it will happen because we know he is living. And so that is where we place our trust today and every day after. Let us do that and close our time in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. What a beautiful reminder this text is. A beautiful reminder of the real challenges we all face. God, I don't know what challenges are faced here this morning. These men and women and children, but I know they are real and I know they are overwhelming at times. But God, you are greater, you are stronger. You are sovereign, God, and cause us to see that, cause us to fix our eyes upon you. Daily, God, remind us of these ancient truths that are still true today. Cause us to experience your presence that is uniquely experienced through your Holy Spirit who indwells us. Cause us to experience your goodness. Cause us to taste and see the sweetness, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we daily consecrate ourselves before you and diligently strive to enter that rest, God, might we do so confident knowing that our eternal security does not rest in our perfect obedience but in the perfect obedience of your son, Jesus Christ who stands at the ready, willing to hear us, and who will one day present us without spot before you, Father. Jesus, come today. Present us before the Father today, God. But give us patience as we await, knowing that it is in your name we pray these things. Amen.